I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and associate professor of English at the University of Nevada, Christopher Koch. His new book is You Would Have Told Me Not To. Uh, Through a collection of stories, Christopher Koch examines the fallout from failed relationships between men and women, relationships that have crumbled under the weight of betrayal, misplaced hopes, illness, and in particular, from masculinity at its most toxic and misguided. These fictions ask very contemporary questions. How do ex-spouses learn to live again in proximity to one another? How do we make peace with our bodies and their worst impulses? How do we learn to turn and face full-on the worst mistakes of our younger selves? Christopher Koch was named one of Granta's best young American novelists and has been published in numerous literary journals. He's the author of the novel You Came Back and the story collection We're in Trouble. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Nice to have you here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you do tell stories and you really do tell them well. You draw us in. Um, You are a storyteller. A storyteller is born or do you have to develop the ability to be a storyteller? Uh, Both those things. When I was uh, just a a tiny kid and my mother started reading me stories, I immediately started making things up and telling them back to her. Um, But to get good at it is a lot of work. Uh, And I've devoted most of my life uh, to, to working on, you know, getting better and better. Even now, three books in, I'm still trying to figure out what I don't know and how I can address it. Is this, would you call this, would you say, this, or did you feel this is your best book ever? I don't know about that. Um, I'm very proud of it. Uh, you know, it was, it was a hard book to write, and there are some stories in there that I think, just in terms of the craft required to get them where I wanted them to be, uh, that they're among my very best. But I try to leave... Uh, I try to leave uh, assessments like that up to readers and, and let them make what they will of it. So we will read all your books and then decide which one. And um, Okay, leave it up to us, the reader. All right, let's talk about the topic, though. I mean, this is a collection of stories. Sure. Okay, we're talking about failed relationships between men and women and the re- uh, reasons that these relationships have failed – um, one of the uh, issues that you focus on is masculinity at its most toxic and misguided. Um, why, I guess this comes, I'm assuming, from your own personal experiences? Yes. Um, I grew up in central Indiana, uh, out in the cornfields. I have a uh, very complicated dad from whom I'm estranged. He was, he is presumably still an alcoholic and was very abusive to my mother when uh, we were all living together. And they divorced when I was 13. So I grew up a, an artsy kid, um, you know, then very skinny and non-athletic and wanting to play Dungeons and Dragons and write stories and read comic books. And the examples of masculinity that I had around me, both at home and in my community, uh, were not the ones that I wanted. They didn't, they felt inadequate to me. Um, and I have struggled with that my entire life. Uh, you know, we live in a culture that wants us to be, that wants men to be, uh, uh, 
you know, constrained in some ways, uh, emotionally. Um, they want us to look a certain way. They want us to act a certain way. And I'm speaking very broadly, but, uh, you know, getting to where I am now, which is 48 years old, that's been a theme throughout my life is just not quite feeling like I was doing the things that the world wanted me to be doing. Um, the other thing that uh, uh, kind of hovers over all of that is that uh, I've been married twice. Um, my first wife passed away in 1990 in my 20s uh, from bone cancer. Mm. So, I had a marriage that I liked very much and that ended very soon and without, you know, much attempt or, or much opportunity for closure. And, uh, you know, so I, I have always thought of myself as, as more or less two different people, the guy who lived then and the guy who is remarried and you know, trying to make his way now. So, you know, that's another, that, that enters into the equation too. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what sort of man I need to be and often failing. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, make any sort of claim that I had this figured out since I was a kid. And also that, you know, I've, I've kind of got this opposition within me. You know, I was one way then, I am this way now. Uh, and I've always tried to, to figure out how to negotiate that. Without but when you say you were one way the then, and the, you were one way then, you, uh, you were this way now. When you say that, what do you mean? Like you were one way when you were married to your first wife and then well i mean yeah yeah i mean that's in some ways that's dangerous thinking um you know i those are those are realizations that i've had relatively recently that uh just because i had that other life that ended sort of abruptly um that doesn't necessarily mean that that life was better or worse than the one i'm living now uh but grief does strange things. And, and, you know, maybe that's a way that I could put this is that there's a lot of my work that looks at kind of the intersections of grief and masculinity. Um, you know, that's, that's a thing that I think that's an area in which I think I've not done particularly well over the years, uh, is learning how to deal with grief as, as a male, as, uh, somebody who, you know, could have benefited a lot from expressing his feelings a little bit better. Even though I write about grief all the time, even though, you know, these are things that I look at on the page uh, in my own personal life, you know, I've, I, I could have done a better job, I think, in working this through have, and being yeah, more how open could with you have done? A, I guess I want to, like, how could you have done a better job? I mean, what were your expectations for yourself? What did you not do or you should or you think you should have done so that you would have expressed I, your grief yeah, in a better way for you? Well, well, I could have gotten into therapy a lot sooner than I did. Um, you know, I, I have a very good therapist here in Reno right now and uh, have worked with one other person along the way, too. But I think uh, for a long period of time, I just wanted to kind of move forward and reinvent myself and tough it out. Uh, I didn't use those words exactly, but I remember telling people who were encouraging me to sit down and talk with somebody professional, you know, well, this is sad. I'm supposed to feel sad. Um, you know, I have to live through this. And I think I would have benefited. In retrospect, I definitely would have benefited from being able to talk through some of the things that were floating around in my head and uh, some of the very poisonous thoughts that, uh, you know, being a, being a survivor of, uh, uh, you know, something like this puts in, puts in there. 
Yeah, I, I think, and so what you're saying is that being a man or all of the expectations for men are that they're supposed to hide their feelings. They don't necessarily go into therapy, which is, and we are being mm-hmm. general, but I think there is some truth to that and that women tend to talk to people a lot about their feelings, the good one that, you know, the good and the bad, and also get into their, you know, or quicker to get into therapy or accept that kind of help. So that's what you're mm-hmm you're struggling with? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, it's more complicated than that. I tend to be an oversharer. I have probably put the burden of therapy on a lot of my friends over the years. Um, But uh, yeah, as I look back at it now from 48 years old, looking back on myself 20 years ago, um, you know, that's what I would like to say to that guy, Uh, you know, is (laughs) this is harder than you think it is. This is going to be a lot longer a process than you think it is. Um, you know, swallow your pride because that's what's keeping you out of, you know, a a therapist's office right now and go in there and and actually start doing this work. So how is that reflected in each each one of your stories? In different ways. Um, You know, I I can look back at all three of my books and say that I've been working, I've, I've been trying to look at toxic masculinity, you know, to some extent in a lot of them. But this new book was one where that was a very conscious theme of mine throughout. Um, Story collections, you know, the way they work is that oftentimes we're not sure that they're going to be a book until very late in the process. So I had several stories and then started to look at them and realized what they had in common and where I was in my life and then finished up the book with uh, an eye toward thematic consistency. So I I was telling people this was my toxic masculinity book. When we turned it into the press that took it, Delphinium Books, all, uh, all of the stories but one were narrated or had as the central character a male. Uh, the, the book was called Big Guy at that point, uh, named after the, the novella that closes the book. My editor thought that a couple of the stories were a little bit weaker than the others and he had me cut them and write two new ones. And both of those stories ended up having women as their central characters. So now it's a more conversational book, I think, um, and as I was finishing the book up, that's when the Me Too movement began to become, you know, much more, uh, uh, you know, prevalent and visible. And while I am very sympathetic to the Me Too movement, I mean, what it taught me was that the things that I thought I knew were nowhere near, uh, you know, what what was actually being experienced by many of the women in my life. All right, so, so I'm going to stop you there. Take one of those. Tell us. Sure. Give us an example. Um, I, you know, I, I assumed that many of the women I knew had been through these experiences, but even then I was a little shocked and taken aback by just how many, once my friends started talking, um, you know, my mother, my sister, uh, my first wife, my, my, the wife I'm married to now, everybody's had these experiences. Um, I should also note too, I mean, this was only a couple of years after my wife and I separated and nearly divorced. And, uh, you know, any assessment of what happened then is that, you know, I, I was the guy at fault. Um, we have some things to work on, but I was the one who, who said he wanted the separation and we reconciled, but I've been feeling very guilty about that and, you know, wanting to, to kind of make amends. So, uh, you know, the Me Too movement for me was, a, like everybody who's paying attention, a chance to go back and think about, you know, younger behavior and, and the way that I've treated people. But also, I was coming off a time when I realized, like, I'm not 
the man I think I am. I'm not necessarily as good a person as I think I am. Uh, and if I would like to be the person, <laughs> if I would like to be that person, I've got some work to do. So some of those things ended up into the stories as well. Um, these are stories that are looking at people who have divorced, who are um, reconciling, you know, after uh, after fractures. the The story that closes the book, um, the the novella, was the toughest one for me to write. Uh, it's called Big Guy. It's about a man, and this is not autobiographical, right? These I'm taking from some other fears of mine, uh, but it's about a man who's divorced. His wife leaves him, and he's convinced that's because he's obese, that he needs to lose 100 pounds in order to be a better uh, person and to move forward in his life. Since my mid-20s, when my metabolism hit a brick wall, I've been a large person. Uh, I've gained and lost a lot of weight. Um, Probably in aggregate, I have lost in chunks that I've gained back about 250 pounds. Uh, And that's another thing that I've been you know, talking to my therapist about over the years is that I have lived the past two decades in a state of dissatisfaction with my body. I don't like what I see in the mirror. I'm always trying to change it. I'm either starving myself or eating too much. There's never been any any sort of equilibrium there. And a mild spoiler for that story is that that's uh, the protagonist in that book. uh, Losing weight is not his problem. It, would, it might help him to lose some weight, but uh, he's got some other things that I think are made more clear when he gets the body that he wants. Well, it's I interesting think I answered your question, that, but I might have rambled on a little bit. No, uh, you did answer my question. That's, um, you know, you definitely answered the question. Well, I'm thinking of the going back to the first story, which I was so surprised at the ending. I had absolutely no idea. I'm not going to, I don't know if you, we don't want to give it away, but um Obviously, when you the first story is you you're getting you know the toxicity of being a man, the masculinity, et cetera. You know, you sort of open up with that kind of a theme, but then the ending is well. I'm not going to talk about what the ending is. We'll use that as a teaser. But um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, uh, we could talk maybe about a couple of stories in the middle. Um, but I mean, you're obviously, and it comes across in the stories. I mean, like a you know, talk about this idea of masculinity, but you are such a sensitive man and in, uh, in just in talking to you, but also in the way you write your stories. Uh, so there isn't that sort of macho masculinity that many people think of. It's, you're kind of quite the opposite of that. You are the opposite of that. Well, thank you. But I mean, one thing that I would always uh, you know, caution any, anybody it's one thing to be empathetic on the page when we have a lot of, when writers have a lot of time to get there and another thing to be empathetic in the moment. Um, you know, that story, it's actually an old, the oldest story in the book, that first one, I wrote it way back in 2006 and it had never been, uh, uh, part of a, a collection of mine and it just seemed to fit the theme so well and introduce the, the, what I wanted to do in the rest of the book so well that we had to include it. But that's a book that it took weeks and weeks to get right um, and some conversations with editors to get right. Uh, with every story that I write, there's you know at least that much material that I leave on the, on the cutting room floor. So, yes, my goal is to not be uh, you know, a certain sort of male writer. There are a lot of them out there, that, and, and I just can't read their work. Um, it's full of posturing, and it's full of the celebrations of bad behavior. Uh, I don't like that, but it's also something that I have to work at. Um, 
you know, there's a, there's a few stories in the middle of the book too that, like I said, we're saying earlier, uh, have women as their protagonists, and they took a long time and a lot of guessing and a lot of talking to people and and you know editorial work to get where I needed them to go. So, you know, I, I've met a lot of people who think, and I, I felt this way too, that because writers can uh, reveal things and make us feel certain ways very intensely that they have that ability kind of on command. But most fiction writers I know are you know, schlubs who just put in the work and sit in dark rooms, you know, trying to make stuff up. And, and sometimes they get it right. And sometimes they don't. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's true. I think women are very complex creatures. Um, you know, you were talking about the me, me too movement and um it, it just sort of in their natural state. Perhaps men aren't quite that way, just in terms of physiology. Um, and and they're, they're, they come from very different places. I mean, I, I don't, so I think it's, um, I guess I commend you in trying to, or, or you're, well, when you talk about the Me Too movement, trying to understand women and where you fit into the picture and your relationships with the women that you've been with. Um, it's an ongoing thing. It's, it, it, it evolves, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, but I also, you know, I want to, I don't want to use the phrase I want to stay in my lane because I don't think that's necessarily what fiction writers are, are here to do. But I also wanted to, this book was an answer to a question I kept asking myself, which is what what can I say that is of use to the world now? Um, you know, I, I read a lot of books by by men and women alike uh, that that tend to force their way into a conversation you know, in an unwelcome way. Uh, we live in a post-Trump world. We live in you know a world informed by Me Too. Uh, you know, I, when I was writing this book, there was no way that I could imagine that I would be doing a lot of interviews for it while, you know, confined to my house. And, you know, uh, we have the, the Black Lives Matter movement now making uh, a lot of very necessary noise across the country. You know, like I'm a white, heterosexual, cisgendered male writer. I want to be able to say something that, you know, blend in with the conversations that everybody else is having. I don't, in other words, it's not my, it, and it was never my job to write a book that was going to, you know, answer uh, definitively any of the questions raised by the Me Too movement. But I also wanted to to write a complex book that, um, you know, did have something to say about it, uh, if that makes any sense. You know, it does make sense. I, I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know if actually you have the same kind of contact with your students right now. You're an associate professor of English. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have, the, uh, yeah, the response? Is there or have, are you in contact with your students? And is what kind of response do they have to the book? Um, a couple of them uh, have written to say that they read it. Uh, I've been talking with them about it as it's been getting you know, sold and edited too. Um I hope they like it. There's, there's one story. The last story I finished for the book is from the perspective of a woman who has had uh, an abusive, who has been in an abusive marriage many years before. And as the story opens, uh, she unexpectedly runs into her ex-husband, realizes he's getting remarried, that he you know, claims to have reformed himself. And she spends the rest of the story wondering whether she
he should say something to his fiance, whether they need to have a conversation. That was a story that made me very, very nervous as I was writing it. I tried to write that story from a couple of a couple of different ways, uh, all from the ex-husband's perspective. And when I was doing that, uh, his ex-wife became a kind of antagonist in the story, which which made me very uncomfortable. Um, I wanted the story's sympathies to be with her. And if she was in a position to talk to his fiance and he knew that, you know, he would be too fearful and, and she would become this kind of villain. Uh, and at the very, not the very last minute, but with, a, with little enough time left before my deadline to present the story that I had to get it right, uh, I tried it from her perspective. The story worked much better. And I talked to people uh, who've been in those positions. I've, I've shown the story around to several people. But I knew that a few of my students had been in relationships like that. And that's the story that has made me the most nervous as the book has gone out into the world. I just didn't want to get that wrong. I didn't want to put a story in the book, however necessary I thought it might be, that might cause somebody pain to read. Um, and I've been, a, a couple of people have reached out to me about that story and said that, you know, they were, they were moved by it and that they thought that uh, it was pretty accurate. So... When you I'm, get a, to I'm that a Midwestern point. kid still. I don't like praise very much, but that made me happy to, to hear that I had not caused any, any pain and that it was causing some good reflection in people. When you take ownership of your story, obviously, and it gets to the point where you feel, okay, this is right, this is, I, I've done it. And then you go and you show it to your editor. How much editing do they do and how painful it is if they edit out stuff that you just need to have in there or feel mm-hmm. that you want to, to retain? It's usually a conversation. I have a very good editor this time around. Um, the the editor at, at Delphinium Books is a guy named Joseph Olshan. He's a novelist, too. Uh, he's written far more books than I have and knows how this process goes. So it's very collaborative. Um, when he told me, for instance, that he wanted to cut two stories that he thought were weak, I knew immediately before he finished the sentence which ones he was going to uh-huh. point to. Um, a good editor confirms, I think, a writer's suspicions. It's up to the writer to be uh, 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 a good partner in that sort of relationship. That's something I tell my students all the time. Uh, so I want to make sure that I practice what I preach in that regard. But I like to be I like to be a professional about it. If somebody likes my book enough to take it on and say I want to get this where it needs to go, and they can explain to me the important things about the book and the way that I see them, then I think that's a really useful partnership. I don't get everything right the first time. Uh, I tend to write long. I really can benefit from somebody going in and and being tough with me and saying, you need to make this half as long. You need to make this a third as long. Um, So Joe and I had some really good conversations. And Joe would always tell me, too, as all good editors do, you get to win. This is your book. Your name's on it, not mine. Uh, Here's what I think you should do. And most of them presented as a challenge. If If you can say no to me about this, then you get to keep it. But you have to you have to have a really good reason. So I felt uh, uh, this was a very very good collaboration uh, all the way through. I, I liked working with Joe a lot. Yeah. So you do need that. You know, I was going to use the word chemistry, but you need a col- it has to be a collaborative effort as you're describing. We only have a couple minutes left. It's a great book. Um, just um, I just want to give you the title, give the listeners title of the book again, you would have told me not to. And we're talking to Christopher Koch, who is an associate professor of English at the University of Nevada. Um, 
we can, I downloaded the book on my iPad, so, but you can get it where, uh, and websites that we can go to to get more information about you and the other books that you've written as well. Yeah, um, anybody can go to my website, which is ChristopherCoke.info. Uh, my last name is spelled C-O-A-K-E. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange one. So ChristopherCoke.info. There are links to order all my books from various sites. It's always my preference if somebody would order from a local or independent bookstore. And there are a couple of links on the site that'll uh, that'll let people do that. But it's available in ebook form. It's available through Amazon. Um, you know, anywhere books are sold. That's great. So now we're going to be waiting for your next book. It takes a while. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> I'm a slow writer, so uh, okay. Well, you've got time focus on this, this one for now. Great. This is a great book. Thank you so much for being on this show. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Christopher. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. 